Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Since 2017, more than a million Uyghurs and members of other Turkic Muslim minorities have disappeared into a vast network of re-education camps in the far west region of Xinjiang in what some experts call a systematic government-led program of cultural genocide. Now it appears that plans have entered a new phase, as government officials now claim that all trainees have graduated. There is mounting evidence that many Uyghurs are now being forced to work in factories. Here to discuss these new developments is Associate Professor James Leibold, Head of the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, James. Pleasure to be back with you, Matt. It's been a while, and we were talking Uyghur issues last time, and look how much has developed yeah, in, that, well. in that one year. It's incredible how the story has developed over the last decade mm. uh, since I've been really tracking it. Uh, there's always uh, new twists and turns, and as a academic researcher, I'm trying to keep up uh, on top of those changes, but also to shed n- new lights on different parts of government policy there. Mm. Well, you've been part of a team that has written a report for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which very much does that and, and moves the narrative forward and is very informative of what's happening to the Uyghurs at the moment. So can you take me through, uh, firstly, with a, a bit of background, if you could telescope what's happened in the last two years into some sort of pithy statement what has been happening to the Uyghurs? Why are they being re-educated? Why does China think this is something that needs to be done slash can be done? Happy to do that. Um, I should also first begin by acknowledging the, the fantastic team at ASPE that uh, worked on this report for over, over three months. Uh, the lead author was Vicky Shu, mm. uh, who's really uh, started working on this uh, last year when she started to notice some interesting information on the Chinese internet. Uh, but we came together as a team with Danielle Cave, with uh, Kelsey Monroe, with uh, Nathan Rusi to work on it kind of collectively. And each of us kind of, I think, brought uh, a different perspective on it. It became a kind of labor of love. Uh, but it's, uh, as you know, an incredibly serious and depressing topic. Mm. At its heart, it's a, an effort to re-engineer a cohort of the Chinese uh, population, Muslim minority, chiefly the Uyghurs, who uh, have a population around uh, uh, 10 million, as well other Turkic-speaking Muslim minority groups that live in the far western region of Xinjiang. China's always had a conflictual relationship with its uh, minority population. On the one hand, at various times, it's tried to accommodate those groups by providing them with special protections for their culture, their language, their religions. I would argue that it was largely a strategic approach. How do you rule such a a vast territory and a a massive population? Other times they've pushed to try to transform minority populations in its own image. Uh, So the vast majority of members of the Chinese Communist Party are, are representative of the Han ethnic majority group. Mm-hmm. So all the top leaders, including Xi Jinping, are uh, members of that majority group. And at times, it's tried to impose its language, its uh, cultural values, as well as its political and ideological views on minority groups. And so what we've seen under Xi Jinping is a, a kind of a turn in 
the party's approach towards its ethnic minority groups to try to ramp up the flames of uh, the cultural melting pot. Mm. Um, and that's been felt most intensely in the far west region of Xinjiang, largely out of what I think are overinflated fears about instability, about Islamic extremism that became a pretext for the government to really uh, ramp up its uh, transformative policies. So it did this through establishing re-education camps where Uyghur individuals were moved and housed is a generous word, but there was more to it than that. And it really was a re-education. You were not allowed to worship. You were not allowed to have independent thought beyond hear your notes. Yes, and it's gotten a lot of uh, public attention, the creation of hundreds of these massive camps that are really from satellite imagery and photos on the ground do look like prisons with barbed wire and watchtowers and to uh, forcefully detain a million or a million plus uh, people in these camps. Mm. Outside observers look at this and say, wait a minute, we've seen this before. This is what happened to the Jews uh, during the Second World War. I mean, there's a long history of mass internment of populations. And China itself has its own history of this as well. If you go back into the 1950s and 1960s, the Chinese Communist Party was rounding up first prostitutes and drug addicts and then moved on to people of uh, what were deemed to be rightists or people with ideological dispositions that were counter to the the Chinese Communist Party. Mm. And so they had quite an extensive transformation through labor project in the Maoist period. And uh, what we've seen is the a copying of both global models as well as uh, domestic models through the creation of this mass internment uh, strategy in Xinjiang. There are suggestions that we may be entering a kind of new phase of sorts. Mm. So tell me about this new phase. I mean, we've said that these Uyghurs are graduating, quotation fingers, and being moved into roles of, of working in factories. Tell me what that entails, but also maybe firstly, how did this come to your attention? Officials for uh, the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang, I think partially reacting to international pressure, announced in December of last year that the uh, so-called trainees had all graduated or were shortly to graduate, and they would be returning back to their home communities. Mm. And I think a lot of us scholars who are interested in Xinjiang wanted to see what that meant. And so we've been casting around to try to bring available evidence to bear to see what is happening with these camps. I think what we are discovering is that a variety of things are happening. In some cases, members of these camps who have been detained are being brought through the formal judicial process and they are being formally charged and they are being transferred to the regular prison population. In some cases, that might be the repurposing of a detention camp into a formal prison. The other thing we are seeing is that some of these detention centers are transforming into satellite factories. Uh, So detainees would not necessarily move physically, but they would go from receiving a kind of form of education to now uh, kind of vocational training and onto kind of formal employment, but all in the same place. Right. And and then the third uh, thing we've seen is that, yes, some have been released and they've been 
returned, often assigned work by uh, party officials. It's not like you open up the gates and on you go. It's more that the local officials will organize formal forms of employment for them. And in some cases, that's satellite factories back in their home villages or in other parts of Xinjiang. And what we did in this report was to document how some individuals are actually being transported to factories across China, so factories outside of Xinjiang in major cities like uh, you know Qingdao and Guangdong, Shanghai, etc., mm. as a, a form of labor transfer that has existed in the past, but really has been ramped up as these re-education camps are slowly kind of uh, transformed into a kind of more normal part of society in Xinjiang. Mm-hmm. And do you think it was an intention for this to always happen? Or is it an opportunistic thing of, you know, we've got all these graduates? Because part of me looks at what's happening here and realizes that there's parallels to this kind of thing in other countries. There's a lot of differences. But in the American penal system, you've got prisoners there. The trope is making number plates, but, you know, they're doing things for a very small amount of pay. They're being productive that way. Then also you've got countries like India where you've got essentially a caste system where this is what it sounds like is happening to the Uyghurs, although it's enforced and engineered. So do you think that this was always an intention or is it opportunistic? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think it's very difficult to read the intentions of party officials. You know, it's really uh, like veering into a black box because we just really don't have access to their thinking and very scattered uh, forms of documentary evidence. I suspect their intention was always about full transformation of these individuals, both in terms of thought and behavior. And that likely had several elements to it. The first being to ensure that these detainees were conversant in Mandarin Chinese, so many of them would not have been. Mm. Uh, And so a big focus of uh, re-education at the beginning was Mandarin uh, language training, but as well as training in basic laws and cultural norms even. Hygiene is really a kind of boot camp in terms of how to be a good Han citizen. But there was always, uh, and this is deeply rooted in a kind of Marxist view, which the Chinese Communist Party still claims to espouse, that liberation or transformation ultimately will occur through engagement in productive labor. And so there's this idea that, you know, first you get them speaking Mandarin Chinese and you get them to understand, you know, what proper clothing is like and hygiene. But then you get them into a factory and on the factory line working beside others will lead to further disciplining and transformation of body and mind. Mm. And, you know, there are other kind of practical issues as well, you know, to detain people in mass, you know, a million plus is an incredibly expensive exercise. And so there was a need eventually to ensure that these people to were, turn a profit. Yeah, were, were involved in the productive mm. capacities of the, the, of the Chinese party state system. Yeah. Um, so I think it was probably inevitable that we would uh, move in this direction, perhaps a question of timing. I do think that if you look at these campaigns back in uh, recent Chinese history, you see that often they reach a peak and then then morph into another phase, mm. simply because it, you know, it takes a lot of resources to mobilize people to do these things. Yeah, yeah. You said that some Uyghurs are being sent out of Xinjiang. How are they doing this? Are they advertising, we've got a million Uyghurs who want some workers? Yeah, again, this is done at a local level. Yeah. Um, and I have to say our... our 
information again is partial. So what we tried to do in the report is piece together based on local government media reports, as well as government contracts, as well as ads that we found on the Chinese internet to get a sense of how this process occurs. It largely is funded by the uh, regional government in Xinjiang mm. that will pay a price per head to both uh, middlemen, brokers, commercial brokers, as well as receiving factories. So there's a lot of uh, financial inducements to do this. Yeah. It's seen as a kind of patriotic act for uh, factories in the East. And what you'll have is often a kind of local government that'll have a group of newly disciplined workers that they want to dispatch. And then they'll go to a middleman, a broker, who will then go to factories and sort of say, hey, we've got these workers. Here's the terms on which they can be employed. Money changes hand, and the, the broker gets a cut per head, and the factory gets a special allowances per head or gets special arrangements around you know, building a special dorm or providing a halal kitchen, etc. And then the end result is that these uh, Uyghur or other Turkic Muslim minority workers are transferred often in special trains, you know, together in uniforms and hats, and off they go to the factory where they're uh, kept usually for a period of between one and three years. Okay. So they're treated like a real commodity then? Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. You know, I mean, essentially you have the buying and selling of laborers. Yeah. Uh, and it's quite explicit if you look at some of the ads and some of the contracts that we've been able to find online. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what sort of working conditions are these people kept in then? We tried to document that by looking at some of the media reports that were put out by receiving factories, mm. uh, both the factories themselves as well as local government officials. We also worked with the Washington Post and its reporter Anna Fifield to visit one factory in particular, the uh, Taiwan factory in Qingdao. Uh, where she was able to kind of walk around and get a sense of the factory, speak with some people outside the factory walls. I mean, what you see in terms of the Taiwan factory is it's, uh, you know, surrounded with barbed wire, mm. as well as uh, numerous propaganda posters proclaiming uh, the, the benefits of ethnic unity. We were able to confirm that the uh, Uyghur workers live in a separate uh, dormitory, that while they're free to move around, the compound and allowed to occasionally leave the compound. They are tracked with facial recognition cameras. There's a police station right at the entrance that monitors who comes in and who goes out. We're also able to document that these workers, uh, perhaps not in this particular case, but certainly in other cases, are tracked via surveillance apps on their phones. So these people are by no means have a complete uh, freedom of mobility. Yeah. And so one of the things we want to try to document, because we make the claim in the report that these workers could be held under conditions that amount to forced labor. No, there's no way without speaking to these individuals to be able to verify that 100%. But we were able to find a number of bits of evidence that made us uh, quite concerned, whether that be facts that, you know, they're isolated in separate dormitories, that their mobility was hindered, restricted, suggestions that they may not be receiving equal pay, the fact that they are being surveilled. The fact that there was intimidation used, likely, whether it be intimidation back to their families back in Xinjiang or even to individual workers, that if you don't 
agree to accept the, this assignment, you could go back to uh, re-education in Xinjiang, or your parents could be sent off to re-education. So what we're seeing is, you know, certainly in some cases, or I would suggest in many cases, that these people were not doing this under their own free will. Yeah. Uh, that they were being coerced into participating in these programs and often didn't have the ability to exit without fear of consequences to themselves and their family members. So China is the dominant player in the supply chain of the world. So what does this factory make, this one in particular? The Taiwan factory that I was talking about, it really gets at the complexity of supply chains and the way they operate. Mm. And I think that complexity means that responsibility for ensuring that workers are not held under forced labor conditions is distributed, which makes it easier for people to sort of say, well, I didn't know that was happening or, you know, blame someone else. If I go back to the Taiwan factory, just to give you an example of it, the Taiwan factory is a factory owned by a Korean multinational company, Chebol. And the Taiwan factory then is subcontracted by Nike to produce a range of its shoes. Right. Um, and it's one of uh, Nike's biggest factories globally. So Nike can claim we didn't know it was going on. We were paying this factory, but we weren't asking questions. Yeah, well, they should have. A, and I do know this happens. Um, major brands, major multinational companies do do due diligence audits mm. to ensure that their suppliers are upholding international laws. I can't speak for what was happening in the case of this factory. In particular, I do know that uh, when Anna Fifield was there, she was told that she couldn't go in because uh, Nike was conducting an audit at that time. Right. Now, whether that was true or not, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and Nike has issued a statement saying they are in further investigating this issue. Mm. So uh, we may get some clarity uh, over time about what was happening. Yeah in that factory. I mean, but one of the the real dangers here, and uh, it's, uh, you know, I don't really have a simple solution to this, is that the easiest thing for factories to do is just to wash their hands of this particular factory or send the, the weaker workers back to Xinjiang, mm. uh, where they could actually be placed in a, a situation of even greater harm. Mm. So it's a fine line between, on the one hand, we need to expose these things. We need to encourage companies to do these uh, social audits and proper due diligence on their supply chains. But at the same time, they themselves are quite hand-strong in the sense that it's very difficult to do these things inside of China. Yeah. Um, yeah. But at the same time, that does not, I think... Uh, reduce their kind of moral responsibility to ensure that their supply chains are clean. And if they're not, then they should think about going somewhere else. So this wasn't the only factory, though, that you identified as where Uyghurs were going to be put to work. So how many other companies are are caught up in this? Yeah, so we looked at hundreds of uh, factories, and these hundreds of factories supplied over 80 major brands. These are brands across the globe, not just um, headquartered in the United States. Again, because supply chain is so complicated, in some cases, if you take, for example, the case of Apple, we looked in the report at a company called Ofilm, mm. which is based in, in Jiangxi a couple of years ago that Tim Cook came there and uh, looked at their processes. And what we were able to do is document that O-Film has employed uh, a group of Uyghurs in their factory, but O-Film produces one you know, small component of uh, the iPhone. It's uh, parts of the selfie camera. Yeah. But that 
part then goes off to Beijing and to a major technology company, which then supplies that to Foxconn, yeah. which then assembles the iPhone uh, to have it shipped off to consumers across the globe. So, so we're talking about layers upon layers here. That's a real but, supply chain. Yeah, yeah. but that's, yeah. I guess, part of the point that we wanted to make is that there's a perception, to the extent that people know what's happening in Xinjiang, people say, well, geez, that's really bad. Mm. That's like, a, this is a big problem. And companies that had uh, factories in Xinjiang are certainly thinking twice about that. But what we wanted to try to do with the report is say, hey, actually, it's far more complicated, mm. that this is a China-wide problem. It does call into question the ability of uh, brands across the globe to ensure that they're not somehow complicit in forced labor practices. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to understand how supply chains operate, but also how they operate inside the Chinese context if we're going to be, again, to try to figure out how to ensure that this concern we have with regards to weaker forced labor is, uh, is properly investigated. So what would you hope would be the response from the global community out of this. I mean, it's one thing for brands to have a reaction and to conduct corporate social responsibility and try and enact some change by saying, I'm going to remove my business from you. But that ultimately comes down to the dollar. So what do you hope to come out of this report? Yeah, so we've made a number of recommendations in the report. And I think the first thing is we need to put pressure on the Chinese Communist Party to alter its policies, to uphold the rights that are embedded in the Chinese constitution as mm. well as Chinese law. Uh, so many of these processes of extrajudicial detention as well as forced labor are clearly against Chinese law. And so uh, we wanted to try to put additional pressure to bear on the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we also wanted to bring some pressure to bear on major multinational companies to ensure uh, they all talk a pretty tough game in terms of corporate social responsibility, mm. that they uphold international norms and international rights to ensure that they don't take the easy way out, that they continue proper due diligence and social audits to ensure that all their suppliers, even their subcontractors, are not somehow complicit in forced labor. But ultimately, I think the third thing we hope to do, and I've been quite pleased by some of the responses, is to raise global awareness about the way in which, not all, but certainly a lot of the major brands that we all take for granted and we all love to use might have a kind of sorted uh, backstory to it mm. that we need to think about when we pop that iPhone in our pocket, where did it come from? Whose hands did it pass through? Were those workers who gave some of their labor to make that phone employed under appropriate conditions. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, as you said, companies often think about profits and their shareholders. The way you can put most pressure on them is to encourage consumers to bring pressure to bear. I'll say here publicly that, you know, this is the last iPhone that I will buy. Yeah, um, okay. And I'm moving away from Mac. Uh, and this is one of the reasons, but there are other reasons as well. But at the same time, it's pretty hard. Where do you go? Because a lot of other companies are also complicit. But I think we as consumers need to do our homework as well mm. and ensure that the products that we decide to buy uphold those ethical standards that the companies say they do. So your report refers to this as phase two of what's happening to the Uyghur, the Uyghur re-education story. Are you concerned that in a year, in 18 months time, that we'll be sitting down here discussing, well, this is phase three now? 
Yeah, I think phase two, and when, I, when we use that term, uh, we use it informally. I don't think the Chinese government is thinking it. Of, oh, of course, but of I, I'm just saying, you know, do you, do you think will, this is the end story of... Who knows? I mean, this story has developed in ways that probably have confounded us. I've always been clear in my mind that what the end game is, it's about breaking kind of the intergenerational transmission of cultural knowledge mm. um, and about re-engineering uh, the Uyghur people, assimilating them into Han cultural norms. I think that process still has a long way to run. I think that process is also multifaceted. It's occurring both amongst poorly educated workers, but also intellectual elites. It's occurring in factories, but it's also occurring in schools and workplaces. Mm. Um, so it has many prongs to it. But as I said, it has a, a long way still to run. And what we don't know is to what extent there is a response. And there can be a response amongst the, the Uyghur community. Cultural memory is very powerful as are forms of resistance, whether they be kind of more weapons of the weak or outbursts of violence. We can't anticipate what will happen. Things happen that we didn't anticipate, and they could have flow-on consequences. Mm. You know, one of the things that we, the team at Aspie, are trying to do is get a handle on how the COVID-19 crisis is impacting upon government policy in Xinjiang. How might it maybe result in a, a shift uh, policy or unintended consequences? So these things continue to evolve, and we're trying to stay on top of them as uh, as best we can. Okay. Well, thanks very much. I hope that we don't have that conversation, but I do look forward to talking to you again. <laughs> My pleasure, Matt. Always great to have a chat with you. Uh, you've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. You can follow James Leibold on Twitter. He is at Jay Leibold. You can follow La Trobe, Asia. We are at La Trobe, Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.